You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to CXMH. My name is Dr. Holly Oxhandler, and I am joined, as always, by my wonderful co-host, Robert Bohr. Hey, Robert. Hey, Holly. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. How are you doing? I'm good. It's cooled off a little. I just went for a, a walk, uh, actually, to pick up my car from somewhere, but that's okay. Uh, and it's nice and, <laughs> you know, it's cooling off a little. It wasn't terrible. So I, I'm enjoying that. Agreed. Yeah, it's the same in Texas. We actually had our windows open yesterday, and it was so nice to have a crust breeze, which I honestly mm-hmm. cannot remember the last time we had our windows open out here in Texas. So it has been so nice. Well, I am so excited to be here with you and our amazing guests that we have for this week. Um, This week, we are joined by Dr. Becky Bell-Scott. She is a senior lecturer at Baylor University. Her work and research focus on primary care behavioral health, including workforce recruitment and training, as well as evidence-based behavioral health interventions for children. She is a certified trainer in child-adult relationship enhancement, um, a trauma-sensitive model for paraprofessional adults to use when interacting with children and adolescents. She's the co-creator of the Integrated Child-Adult Relationship Enhancement, a primary care model for brief intervention for young children with behavioral concerns. Um, She's also certified in parent-child interaction therapy, which is also called PCIT, uh, motivational interviewing, and empowered relief for chronic pain. She is trained in the Unified Protocol, CBT for insomnia, and a number of other gold standard primary care behavioral interventions. Dr. Scott teaches graduate courses focused on clinical social work theory, integrated behavioral health, and practice with children and families. She is the program director for social work in primary care programs at Baylor University and has been awarded over $3 million in funding in both federal and local grants to participate in creating training solutions to the primary care behavioral health workforce needs in Texas. Dr. Scott also serves on the integrated behavioral clinical team at Waco Family Medicine in the role of trainer as well as faculty in the Integrated Healthcare Initiative for Mental Health of America, Greater Houston. And I will add that she is a beloved colleague of mine here in the Garland School Social Work. So I'm so excited to have Dr. Scott here on the show today. Welcome, welcome, Becky. It's good to have you. Thank you, Dr. Oxhandler. I appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. Well, I'm just so excited for our listeners to get to learn from you and all of the good work that you do. Uh, but before I um, go any further, I wonder if there's anything that we missed in the bio there. No, just that I like my dog more than any of those things that you said. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. Well, I do want to cover more about what integrated behavioral health is mm-hmm. um, and talk through that a bit today. Uh, But first, can you tell us a bit about your background into this line of work of integrated behavioral health? Yes. Um, I have, uh, I I studied social work right out of the gate into um, college and have been in some uh, form of practice uh, ever since for for many years, a couple of decades, and uh, even concurrent to teaching 
I, I keep one foot in the practice world. Um, and the unifying theme of my practice focus has been children. So children's behavioral and mental health needs or um, things that uh, Im- impact their functioning in places like school systems, such as school um, or foster care. And for any of us, right, that have worked in, in any of those areas, we know there are a lot of barriers to accessing um, that oh, kind right. of intervention and service. And so pretty quickly, uh, that became a, a theme and in, in everything I paid attention to. So who has access, who doesn't? Why do some people have more access than others? And what's the quality of what people have access to? So um, I've practiced as a a behavioral health provider or a therapist for CPS, um, school-based therapy. And then about 10 years ago, a colleague of mine who's a physician in primary care approached me about how to get social work in the primary care setting. Yeah, that probably uh, lends or leads right right into the next question there, I think, because as somebody who, you know, I know Holly knows a lot about what you do. I know kind of bare bones from what Holly has explained okay. to me. But for somebody who is less familiar with the, the concept of integrated behavioral health, right? I mean, I think I can kind of assume a little bit, but can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, kind of what that is and why that's so important? Yes. So, yeah, those those are pretty that those two questions fit really nicely together in the sense that integrated behavioral health is an umbrella term that certainly I did not make up has been around long before my uh, colleague approached me about partnering locally in it. And it is it it's defined very specifically to mean team based work typically in a it really kind of emerged in the primary care setting. So those are physicians like family physicians, pediatricians, um, geriatricians, and many OB uh, gynecologists are also can play the role of of um, pri- to some degree serve as a primary care provider for some patients. And so yeah. it's the concept that means there is a behavioral health professional on the team who has responsibility for both diagnosing and treatment in collaboration with the physician. So the physician leads the care and the treatment planning, but consults with the behavioral health provider and or uh, tags them in during a an exam or a, an appointment to deliver a brief intervention. So the uh, umbrella term actually has two models that now have a lot of evidence uh, enough t- that we know that that the both both uh, integrated behavioral health models work, and we know better and better how to implement them and why they work. One is called primary care behavioral health. We right. see it as PCBH for short and, and all the literature. And then the collaborative care model, which is intentionally addressing the shortage of psychiatry in the country. And oh, yeah. the, the two mm-hmm. models get implemented a little differently. And many systems have both models. And we can 
talk about that to the degree y'all want to talk about it. Yeah, I I would love for you to to go in and explain both of these models a little bit more in a little bit more detail um, could, uh, and what they look could like. I ask, sorry, could I ask one thing first? Sure. Yeah, go for it. So you you're using the term behavioral health, and I Is think it? for a lot of our listeners, they might okay. be less familiar with that because we usually have folks using you know, mental health, like those kind, right? Like, so is, is there a massive difference there or just for folks who might go, okay, well, I've never really heard behavioral health as a term before. What is, yeah. what, what does that mean? Um, yeah. So it, you're, you're right that for uh, most of these conversations for most of the years, we've used the word mental health and slowly the word behavioral health is emerging as the more commonly used phrase. And what's happening there is it's it's a bit of a Venn diagram in that there is mental health. So there's the circle that's mental health. So that's things that, uh, you know, popular or not, we think in terms of the word psychopathology. I know that's a yucky term, but we think of things that are diagnosable and we have information about how to treat them so and and often have an organic cause so depression schizophrenia bipolar disorder we think of those things kind of centering in that mental health circle then yeah. we have things that cause functional impairment for people are equally painful um. and are qualify of appropriately for intervention and support and sometimes medication that are more caused by the human behavior that wow. that person engaged in. So substance use, um, obesity-related problems, sleep, some sleep disorders are behaviorally related, mm -hmm. some are not. And so the then some of these things overlap too, whether there's a behavioral component or, a, or organic of, only of nature. And so this term behavioral health picks up both kinds of etiologies where we we want right. to think about tobacco use and behavior change related to diet if a person wants to do that but we also want to be able to address and treat anxiety when it shows up wow. yeah so just a, it's a shorter way of, of saying all the above right yeah i love that kind of the, the holistic view which i know we often talk about on the show but I just, you know, for, yeah, for some folks. Yeah, always good that, to define that. I yeah, appreciate that. Yeah, that term hasn't shifted into the broader kind of non-professional side of, of mental health, I think. Right. Yeah. That's a good reminder because that's what's ha currently the profession is finally kind of caught up with that. Like d kind of no matter what kind of trans uh, professionally. So no matter what the professional bent is. People are now using that word interchangeably or more frequently than mental health, but it's a good reminder that clients and patients probably still think of them as separate things and right. that when we introduce someone as a behavioral health provider, it's probably a little confusing. Yeah, it's a really good point. Well, I really, I appreciate that Robert took that step back to kind of create a space for you to um, disentangle those terms and how they're related and different. I, I still would love to circle back on those two models that you talked about Is of it? integrated behavioral health and like, what do those look like? And very practically speaking, like, what do those look yeah. like for folks? 
Yeah. So first, let's set the stage for what problems they're trying to solve. And perfect. Um, one one unified problem is is um, professional shortages. So the shortage of psychiatry, the shortage of clinical social workers, and the healthcare uh, professional shortages sure. of things like um, psychologists. And we know that not only is there a workforce shortage kind of across those professions, but that it's, it is um, disproportionate by region and also affects groups who are often underserved or have less access to mm-hmm. um, high quality care than groups that don't. I'm saying something that's super obvious. However, this matters when we think about the solutions we want to come up with. We don't want to address a gap that really just gives more resources to the same group of people that have always had them, which is a an error we often make um, in this country. And, and so what then unfolded is primary care as a whole. So this family physician group became the de facto prescriber, diagnostician and prescriber for more than half of the people in the United States with a psychiatric illness. Um. And uh, I don't have to belabor the point there that that's asking a whole lot of a specialty area of medicine that is already very stretched to begin with. Um, And so collaborative care and primary care behavioral health began to emerge out of the University of Washington um, and the VA system, the Department of Defense, as a way to do some team-based work that would take some of the burden off of the family physician and increase access to psychiatry. So the way they do that is this. Primary care behavioral health puts a behavioral health person on the physician's team and they do same day visits with patients as they show up in the clinic to see the physician. And the focus of those visits can be behavioral. So as we mentioned before, that could be things like adhering to a diabetes management plan. So lots of motivational interviewing, lots of um, culturally informed question asking about what fits for this person in their diet change, that sort of thing. And then um, that behavioral health provider follows the person briefly for three to five visits while they either get them into specialty mental health, which would be psychiatry, psychology, or a therapist that's going to provide more traditional 14, 15, 20-week run of treatment. And then just does some occasional check-ins and and, uh, booster sessions as needed in the primary care clinic if and when needed. One of the things they're doing is they're taking some of the work overload and mental burden from the physician, but under the physician's guidance and leadership. It's an extender to some degree the way we think of nurse practitioners or physician assistants, but only focused on behavioral health. Yeah. This really leads to a bigger discussion about are are the professionals that get recruited into these positions trained and able to do this? We can move into that discussion at another time if you want. (laughs) The second model is the collaborative care model. um, And 
this is a psychiatrist-led team-based um, approach where um, the behavioral health provider often serves more like a, an advanced case manager, and they present cases from the primary care setting to the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist consults on it mostly around medication decision-making, and the physician and the behavioral health provider then implement what the psychiatrist um, provided as the treatment plan. The, the collaborative care model follows a much larger patient population than a primary care behavioral health professional does and is usually diagnosis specific. So collaborative um. care for major depression. So everyone in this clinic who has major depression is enrolled in the collaborative care model if the patient agrees. And that means a psychiatrist is also following from afar on a consultation base basis the, that particular patient because of their diagnosis. Right. Both have evidence of effectiveness, both increase access for people who typically don't have care in those realms of either psychiatry or um, a therapist. Yeah. This is really helpful, I think. Like, just thinking through, I mean, I so appreciate, I know your heart around access to care and making sure um, that those who may not be able to get the supports that they need for various reasons are actually able to access that care. I was just writing something recently about, um, you know, and highlighting the fact that like Texas, like our access to care, I think it's, I think we're like number 51 out of the whole country. Um, um, yeah, I can't remember. It's something like that where we were, I don't know, or we were like the third least, I don't know. It was something really, I mean, we're, we're really struggling in Texas. So I really appreciate this work that you're doing, especially because, you know, I think about in Texas, like how much we need this. But this is generalizable to so many other communities that this work that you've been doing. So. Right. And yeah, and for sure, I didn't invent it. And it, it, it is uh, right, now right, right. being, uh, you know, so, of course, like many other models that are effective, we saw a lot of momentum on the East Coast and the West Coast. And then. Uh, the rest of the country is starting to catch up with making this. So several groups have now made this the priority. This is the way primary care will be experienced um. moving forward. It, it it will be for everyone in the country where a patient walks in and has, for the most part, access to someone who has a little more narrow focus on things that are mental health and behavioral health related when mm. they walk in to see their doctor that they saw for the flu two um, weeks ago. No, that's so good. Yeah, so the way the average person's experiencing this change is they go now for a checkup, and if it's been a year since their last uh, depression screening, they're asked the two PHQ2 questions about mm -hmm. in the last two weeks. You, you know it, because you got asked the last time I you do. went to your doctor. Everybody do. does, right? No, no, it's no, like, yes. Yeah. Well, I was going to tell you, I just want to put a real quick plug in here. Um, so... You actually trained my my primary care doctor went through oh. your training that you did with Waco Family Medicine. And I actually write about in the soul of the helper about a way in which he approached one of our um, appointments with an integrative behavioral health approach. And I, I write about it in the oh. book. And so 
Yeah. Like, like the work that you're, I mean, just as a quick pause, like, like this, it really does matter. I know you said like, you know, you didn't come up with this and yes, I hear you. And you have done so much to make this accessible within the Waco area and to make this more um, generalizable and to equip students. And I mean, I could go on and on, but um, yeah, but I really, I hope you hear that. Like I said, yes, I know I got asked that question because also my doctor went through your training program, Becky. <laughs> <laughs> and well, so, and not just mine, yeah, but uh, I know my yours colleagues, and Lance. Right, and, yeah. Yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> but, um, you know, like I said, I, I wrote about the whole appointment yeah. in the book. So, As anyways. a receiver of care. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. So now that's becoming normal, like our blood pressure check with the nurse or the CMA there. There's also going to be the questions of, you know, in the last two weeks, have you been bothered by any of the following problems, little interest or pleasure in doing things and a couple of questions. And depending on how a patient answers it, it opens up the next questions. And this is because we know, um, you know, in in about 60 to 70 percent of the cases where someone is experiencing depression that it goes undetected if someone's not asking mm-hmm. and primary care is kind of that de facto catch-all system for better yep. or for worse yeah no that's, that's so important this work um and the fact that it, that there is this touch point to try to catch some of these um symptoms or undetected diagnoses like that's so important i you you were just alluding to your training or or the the you know, the direction that we're moving into. And I do know that you um, that you do offer some training programs to try to help students here, but also social workers more broadly um, around this. Can you talk with us a little bit about the work that you're doing, not only for students within the school of social work, but also the ways that you're trying to make this accessible to, you know, to those outside of Baylor too? Sure. Yeah. So um, the because the several groups like the American Medical Association and National Academies of Science, um, all the family physician groups uh, have said this is standard of care now. There is an understanding that there's a workforce shortage around this specifically. So HRSA, as part of the federal government's offering to address this workforce gap, has offered several funding sources for training the workforce in not just warm bodies, but high quality preparation to be able to do this work. So several universities, including Baylor, have, uh, you know, graduate training programs where it is very narrowly focused on equipping students to walk across the graduation stage, being able to have a higher baseline of knowledge around common presentations in primary care and how to work within a, a, a primary care team effectively, how to communicate to a doctor, how to receive information from a nurse, screening tools to use and brief interventions to do for someone, say, with undetected OCD, that sort of oh, thing. So, um, so we, ha- we offer 28 slots uh, for that training program at Baylor and students do a year-long comprehensive training in that, including an internship that has to qualify for uh, a behavioral health team-based care work. Um, we also have, so the get, there's a, a significant gap. About two years ago, I did a 
feasibility study in the state of Texas about, then what are the solutions that we're not getting to yet for the workforce shortage? And kind of on repeat, I heard from many leaders in the state that if we're, when we're employing social workers, we need then somebody who can provide clinical supervision for the two years that they're doing mm-hmm. case management mm-hmm. with us. Yep. That, that's focused on how to do this really complex work in primary care. And so we've just launched, I'm excited to say, uh, the Primary Care Behavioral <laughs> Health Fellowship, Yay! Clinical Supervision Fellowship. And so for um, a handful of Uh, young professionals, and I don't mean by age, I mean by newer to the profession, who are training to become clinicians in those two years of required clinical years, they can uh, apply and get into our fellowship training program where they get outstanding clinical supervision and some extra training focused on uh, being a primary care behavioral health provider. Well. And then also Mental Health America of Greater Houston has a program called the Integrated Health Care Initiative, and they have a behavioral health consultant training program that is outstanding. And I'm thrilled to be part of that faculty who is really made up of some of the most outstanding psychologists and clinical social workers providing the research and the training and the actual care, not only in the state of Texas, but they're national leaders in primary care behavioral health. And that can be found through the Mental Health America of Greater Houston website. And they enroll behavioral health consultants um, every six to nine months to go through a year-long training that's largely Zoom-based with a couple of visits to to Houston for some skills practice. Um, and we will drop, for anyone who's like uh, taking notes furiously or something, we'll drop links to all those in the, the show notes there. So if you're driving or something, don't feel like you need to memorize all the things. <laughs> yes, right please. There. Drive safely. <laughs> yes. Uh, I don't know if everybody else listens to podcasts mostly while driving like like me. Mm. So I, I love this because one of the things that we've talked about on this show and I've written about some and, and things like that is the idea of removing barriers, right? So if I'm a faith leader and I'm saying, how do I help somebody uh, with with their mental health or something, right? I, my response is usually like, how do we remove barriers in terms of I make an appointment for you or I'll help pay for therapy or I'll watch your kids or whatever. And this is very, very much so that, right? Okay, mm. so you're already going how do we integrate the behavioral health component into uh, an appointment that already exists that most people are perhaps more comfortable with, which is like going to a their primary care physician, right? Like, mm-hmm. so recognizing that that our <laughs> listeners uh, typically we have faith leaders and mental health providers and just individuals who are are wanting to know more about faith and mental health for themselves, their loved ones, right? What advice would you offer? I mean, maybe if we go in, uh, I know that was three distinct groups there, right? But for folks who say, okay, this sounds great. I would love for that to, to be the case. Uh, any any advice on uh, maybe, uh, you know, advocating for that or pursuing that or, or I don't know, any anything for either faith leaders, mental health providers who aren't already, aside from like, go do your trainings. Uh, or just people that are listening? Yeah, yeah, sure. A couple of things. I'm always going to make a 
plug for mental health first aid for all uh, uh, professionals okay. that find themselves, especially like faith, yeah, especially faith leaders. There, you you guys know this well. How commonly they're approached, uh-huh. <laughs> maybe as much or more than their the primary care uh-huh. physician about signs and symptoms that actually point towards a you know an actual yeah. diagnosis. So That's, yes, so that is the impetus for the show. You know, yes. five mm-hmm. six years ago, yeah, <laughs> and that makes sense to me. And and well done you because. Uh, I, I I simultaneously have great compassion for uh, congregational leaders who find themselves often in this situation and and without the equipment to respond effectively. And yeah. this, to me, is actually their true definition of burnout: is when we actually are not capable of relieving the suffering we see, mm-hmm. and so. One solution to that is to get equipped, but that's unreasonable to ask every pastor to get trained or or, or priest or, or whatever to get trained as I would want them to all be psychologists too, if I was being really honest, yeah. really well trained, but that's, that's not happening and that's not reasonable and that's not a calling for some people. So one path is to get the training so you can effectively contribute to solutions and the other is to be able to honestly assess when you're out of your scope and depth very quickly and then know who in your community is really good and effective at this right and 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 a pastor or congregational leader gets really good at hearing things about who was worth referring to and who wasn't so that was a long way of saying Fi- the the congregational leaders benefit their congregates by knowing who in town does this kind of work well and gently asking questions about, di- you know, did you see your behavioral health provider when you were s- seeing your doctor? It also means we can encourage with a little more confidence our loved ones to just go see their primary care provider about general symptoms of behavioral or mental health concern. That is an appropriate kind of gate entry point to get access to the broader services. Yeah. Some are better at it than others, but that's true about all things in the world. Yeah. Well, I... I wonder too, I guess I'm even thinking too about, um, I mean, I know, I know we're, we're getting close to time, but I'm also thinking about the folks who are listening, who may be, um, not necessarily a mental health care provider or a faith leader, but like somebody who, you know, goes to the doctor for that annual checkup and, you know, is maybe wondering, like, does my doctor do this? Or is there anything I should be asking them about this? Or should I? I don't, I don't know. Like, what right. What would you say to those folks? Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. A couple of things. You can ask if, and usually you can tell from the website, if your uh, physician group offers behavioral health as part of their team-based approach. But you can also ask, hey, is there someone on the team that I that that can talk me through how to address my insomnia and uh, mm. and then trust that person 
to be able to do that to some degree. I mean, the trick here is some people aren't as well trained as I wish they were. Maybe they won't be as effective. That's the other thing. It's like all other things, mental and behavioral health. If if it's not a good fit for you, you know, I find that people are less tolerant of bad hairdressers. Like they'll fire (laughs) a bad hairdresser really quickly, but they are loyal to their therapists and behavioral health (laughs) providers. Do not be afraid to say what, I don't know all the reasons why, because I'm not trained in this, but whatever it is, whatever the reason is, this is not working for me. I'm not experiencing symptom relief. Yeah. Fire that person and find another one. That's a little trickier when it's in your doctor's office, but. Yeah. 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 And, and potentially even, I mean, I think, you know, I try to be really explicit with my clients of like, if, if it's, if this isn't working or if you feel like it's not a good fit, that's not going to hurt my feelings please tell me like what what's happening and I can either try and change what I'm doing or I'll, I'll give you some referrals, right? So, I mean, if even if you're going, okay, well, if I, if I say, okay, this one isn't working, bye, then I have to find a whole new one, right? Like they should be able to give you referrals for, you know, if you can articulate a little bit of maybe what's happening or why it's not working or, you know, hopefully that, that most professionals, I would hope again. Yeah, you know, I actually want to take uh, it a step further that. than that. Yeah, I want to take it a step further than that. And and I agree with everything you said. And then actually a, a strong sign that you're with a well-trained, potentially effective behavioral health provider is they actually do that for you by regularly mm. checking in in a very yeah. quantifiable way on symptom relief. Yeah, And mm. there should be built into the process, not the burden on the client or patient to say this is or isn't working it should be on the provider to say hey it looks to me that you still are really feeling awful is this right is this number here on this screening tool truly reflective of your depression symptoms today yeah and that gives the person a little more space to say yeah it is. And then it should open up a question of, is this about the treatment approach we're using? Is this a medication question? Or is mm-hmm. there something culturally here? And, and we haven't even gotten into that, right? Where the we yeah, know the right. literature right. on yep. the concordance of skin color, race, and language matters in the effectiveness of evidence-based treatments. Mm-hmm. And yep. it sometimes frees us up to have that honest conversation. And then we work like heck to get them referred to the right fit, not you know, leave it on patient. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. I'm glad you, I, I, I hear your fierce advocacy around this and I so appreciate it, especially with, uh, you know, making like pushing it on the provider to be doing some of this heavy lifting, I think is so important. So thank you. Well, yeah. Becky, one of the things that uh, there, there's several other amazing things about the work that you do that I would love to talk more about, but hopefully we can bring you back on to talk about those things at some point in the future. Um, but I know that you have poured, I mean, I know that you have poured, <laughs> and you know I know. Yeah. Uh, yep, that you have poured your heart and soul into so much of this work. Um, and and I know that you care deeply about it. And you, I mean, you are so committed to this work um, and in terms of advocating for it and um, disseminating it and training folks in it. And so I'm curious, what would you say is your hope for this work with all that you are pouring mm. into it? 
My hope would be that, I mean, I am a social work educator primarily above other professions. And so my hope is that social work as a profession and then individually social workers who go into this very complex work would be sober about it and not just offer the service, but offer the highest quality gold standard for people who have the least access Uh to treatment. Uh, I think, I actually think it might be worse if we offer, I want to say a bad word, cruddy, I'll say instead, (laughs) we offer cruddy mental health diagnosis, consultation, and service, I think we actually do worse. It's like giving the wrong antibiotic and we create some Um, resistance uh, in the body's uh, healing ability. uh, uh, So my hope is that we would be better at our quality control and we would be very well trained and therefore people who typically don't have access have access to the best. The people with the least get the best. uh, That's my hope. Oh, that is so good. That is so, so good. Like a a stereotypical bleep in there during editing. So it sounds like you really did say (laughs) something. Yes. That's funny. Give me some street cred things. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, so listeners, we will add a link for you to connect with um, Dr. Scott through her Baylor faculty page in the show notes. And she's also generously shared several links for listeners who would like to learn more um, about some of the topics that we covered. And then there's some other topics that she's really passionate about that um, she added some links for uh, for those who would like to learn a bit more Uh, If you would like to um, connect with the show, you can find us at cxmhpodcast.com or on any social media at cxmhpodcast. If you want to connect with Robert, you can find him at robert-4.com or on any social media at Robert4. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me at hollyoxhandler.com or on any social media at hollyoxhandler. Dr. Scott, thank you so, so much for joining us today, for sharing your wisdom, um, and for all of the good work that you're doing. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been very enjoyable. Thanks for listening to the CXMH Podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at cxmhpodcast at gmail.com.